Hi, welcome back to Out of Curiosity, our podcast where we are seeking biblical clarity for modern questions. I'm Nick. And I'm Garland. And today we are going to be uh, diving into a, a really sensitive topic, and it's continuing a, a discussion we've been having on gender roles and the relationship between men and women. And so we're going to talk today about really how does that play out in the context of marriage. So Garland, you want to kind of set us up a little bit for this conversation? Yeah, this, I mean, this is a, an important question. I think it's one that we need to be sensitive to. And the way that it presented kind of in my life, it, it's kind of how I present, hear it presented all the time, is what do we do when we get to the passages that talk about submission? Right. It's a word that we hear as 21st century Westerners, and it automatically makes us feel uncomfortable. And so uh, we have to understand what this is saying about the marriage and about the family. And then we have to figure out what does that even mean practically? So I think we get, we, we get this a little bit misconstrued uh, when we think about it. And in my community group that, uh, that me and my wife lead, the question we were kind of talking about marriage and one of the girls in our group said, okay, I get it. Like, I understand that what the word means. I, I see that it's there, but what does that even mean practically? I don't know. And that began a really interesting question for me is what does this actually mean practically? And uh, the answer might be a little bit surprising. And so that's what we want to take a look at. Okay. So where do we start? Well, yeah, I think first we got to get just a, a handful of guardrails before we have the conversation. Uh, the first one is we saw, as we looked at uh, gender in the image of God, uh, just a few episodes ago, that both men and women are made in God's image. I think we can start there. So yeah. both are uh, comprised the image of God and both are equally affirmed as in the image of God. So we've, we've covered that on other grounds. Uh, the second that we need to recognize and see is when we read the Genesis account, uh, there's something really beautiful about when the man has his wife brought to him, when woman is brought to him, there's a unity and a closeness and a connection. There's an eye-to-eye nature of this that's really uh, beautiful. And uh, I think that most of us, when we see it, we go, that's really cool. And we covered that also in one of our previous episodes. But the third guardrail is something's gone wrong. We have to acknowledge something has gotten broken, and Genesis 3 addresses what's gotten broken, and it addresses it in some of the most basic fundamental places of life, like marriage and family and work and things of that nature. And everything in the world has been affected by what took place in Genesis 3. And that's the point of Genesis 3 is here's what's wrong with the world. So what we're talking about in this particular podcast, to put all those guardrails there, what we're talking about here is in the context of marriage, not government, not politics, not in uh, work. Uh, And so that's what we want to talk about. And if you haven't listened to the previous podcast we did, just setting up gender roles and marriage in the church, uh, that'd be really helpful to go back and listen uh, because it's going to be kind of a guardrail for us in general uh, on this one. And so uh, before we even dive into what does it look like practically, I think a lot of where we get our, our answer to this question is culturally scripted as opposed to maybe biblically scripted. And we see that in a whole bunch of ways, especially kind of in the Southern American uh, world that we find ourselves in. Uh, so like one of those ways we see that take place is uh, men are outside right. and men are, men are to bring dominance and leadership and impact and women are inside and they're to be soft and these sort of gender stereotypes that we bring. I mean, where else do you, do you think we see this one? Yeah, that's a good question. I think, yeah, you have that as far as outside, inside. Um, and I think, I think one of the, the questions, maybe not where else do we see it, but I think one of the questions that feels incredibly difficult to speak to is on the one hand, you have gender stereotypes, right? but that doesn't mean some of the stereotypes are there for a reason. 
Right. So there, there are gender differences. Correct. Um, and I think, uh, I think that makes a lot of confusion because the minute you lay down, hey, men are generally like this, there's always exceptions to that. Right. And so are you therefore saying, well, someone who doesn't fit that generalization is not masculine? Right. Uh, someone who doesn't fit your, your feminine generalization is not feminine. Mm-hmm. I think that gets really tricky. Everything from preferences for entertainment to communication styles. And, and on the one hand, something that can be a generalization about how men communicate and how women communicate that can be really funny also can be really hurtful. Right. When we bring that in and say, well, this is what being a male in headship in the home looks like. This is what being a female in submission looks like. It can be really hurtful. It can be really hurtful. Yeah. And and at the same time, um, psychologists have been able to say this thing and go, there really are actually temperament and personality differences that generally trend um, among men and among women um, that do, there is such thing as gender. Mm-hmm. And, and that's both a biblical concept and a fairly empirical one. And, and so uh, I think sorting out, and maybe just even for definition, it might be helpful. What do you mean by a culturally scripted concept? Versus a biblically scripted concept. Here's a great here's a great example, and this is one I hear all the time. And I would say we've heard this, and we've culturally ingrained it, and then we say it a lot. What does it mean for the male to be the head and the woman to be quote in submission? Well, here's what I, I would call this a cultural script, not in the Bible anywhere. Well, in a one to one vote, the man gets the nod because he's the head. Right. That's our cultural script for making sense of this passage, and we've carried that on through the generations. That's nowhere. Nowhere. In that, the voting five. concept that, is not addressed. I don't understand where we've gotten that concept. And you did a really good job in the, in the previous episode unpacking even what does authority mean mm-hmm. for New Testament uh, uh, followers of Jesus. And the second we bring the concept of power into that, we've missed it. Yeah. Uh, and so we're going to see the very same thing in our passage here. So what we want to do is we want to try to do our best to make sense of what we think Paul has in mind, particularly, and what we think the Bible means by this concept of Submission. So there's a confession we have to acknowledge before we get here. The Bible does not spend, maybe in surprise to some, the Bible does not spend the majority of its pages detailing what it looks like for women to be in submission to men and in talking about gender roles in the home. That's just, it's not the main topic of the Bible. And surprisingly, the Bible doesn't really speak to this question all that much at all. We're going to get our Genesis account, one, two, and three, where we get this beautiful picture and then something's gone wrong, which we've covered. And then we're going to see, we have wisdom literature in the Old Testament. We're going, to have, uh, we're going to have some customary law that we see given down in the Levitical Code, but uh, that we got to hope we might do a whole other podcast on that. And when we get to the New Testament, something unique has taken place. Jesus has showed up and he says, as the king, I am bringing God's reign and rule to bear here in the world. And in effect, I am bringing to light what this was supposed to look like. I'm bringing my kingdom to the earth, and this is what it looks like to follow me, and I'm going to reverse the curse of sin and death. And in a sense, Jesus is trying to recapture what we lost in Genesis 1 and 2, but Jesus doesn't speak to what does it mean to be submissive, quote-unquote, in the home. And so what we're left with is a handful of passages in our New Testament from the Apostle Paul, in particularly Colossians 3 and Ephesians chapter 5. And so I just wanted to say that because I think oftentimes we think, uh, we think this is a really pervasive topic. This is what the Bible's about. It just, it just really isn't. We're going to go to a handful of places. So let's look at Ephesians chapter 5, uh, but a couple, of, uh, a couple of ends of a spectrum that we have to see. On the one hand, uh, Paul has already spoken in the letter to the Corinthians in chapter 7. He gives this very interesting little statement, he says, to men and women. This is very unusual in the first century. He says to men, 
your body is not your own. You don't have authority over it. You're, in fact, you are to, you're yielding it to the needs of your wife. And he says the same thing to women. In the first century, that's highly unusual to have the man addressed in this way. In effect, the point Paul seems to be making is each of you have a responsibility to yield yourself to the other person. Your body, you don't even have authority over your own body because your, your spouse does. It's a very odd thing for Paul to say. And really odd today um, because the idea that I don't have autonomy over myself, that that is um, kind of bedrock human rights idea right and can come across incredibly threatening right oh yeah i mean really really threatening to say i don't have complete autonomy over my own body um and if you listen to a lot of the cultural discourse um that that is the opposite of everything that gets argued right i have complete autonomy over me so there is a i think the correct word is vulnerability Mm -hmm. that 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 passage in first corinthians invites the husband and the wife into an incredible mutual vulnerability to say, I don't own myself. I actually offer myself to you. And the key is that's reciprocal. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so if I were to maybe cast two um, cultural ditches, one would be a, a cultural patriarchy where the man owns the woman, right? Um, which is anti-biblical. The other is a kind of democratic autonomy, individual where I own myself, you own yourself, Mm -hmm. and I'm going to defend my turf. This view of marriage is pretty radical. It's it's beautiful. It's really beautiful. And we might say, while it it is challenging both to the ancient culture and the modern culture, it fits perfectly in line with basically everything Jesus was about. Yes. Uh, Paul will say that in the Philippian letter, uh, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility, consider others' needs more important than yourself. It's the mantra of Jesus and his kingdom ethic. And so in a Christian worldview, it fits really beautifully. Uh, and I think, I think you're right to, to bring that up. And I think uh, it also is important to acknowledge that what this is not advocating is a kind of codependency. Right. Where my personality disappears. Right. Um, there is still differentiation. Mm-hmm. Um, and so per, this is, per, this passage is particularly talking to the issue of sexuality. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we could go too far with it and say, I don't even exist anymore. Uh, I don't, I don't belong to myself. That that's not quite what, right. what Paul's saying. Right. So I think it's important to put those guardrails up to it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So on, on one of the spectrum, we have Paul saying these kinds of statements. Uh, and then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the statements where Paul will use this word, submission or it's a verb so we use like, submit as a command and uh, we have to we have to put those two things on a spectrum and recognize I think oftentimes we come to this question with why does the Bible say to submit and we take all the rest of it out and then we answer that question sort of in a vacuum and we're just trying to bring a little bit bigger uh, uh, kind of a little bit bigger view to this picture here so let's look at Ephesians 5 if you wouldn't mind read Ephesians chapter 5 for us please uh, and let's pick up the passage in verse 21 great you may go to what 20. How far you get me to go? go? Go through 24. Awesome. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. So here's our passage, and what, what Paul is doing is he's explaining what it looks like for the church to be filled with the Holy Spirit in their interactions with each other. Uh, and what's interesting about this particular uh, section of Scripture is the verb submit here in verse 22, that verb actually is not even 
supplied in the verse itself in the original language. It's a carryover from verse 21. So Paul has been expounding what it looks like to be filled with the Spirit, and he describes being filled with the Spirit as speaking to one another with psalms and always giving thanks, this sort of general understanding of gratitude to the Lord, which will express itself in submitting to one another. And so there's this concept in the church that each of us has a responsibility, each of us has an obligation to, as we saw in the Philippian letter, to consider others' needs before ourselves, And then in that same thought, this word that Paul uses in verse 21, submitting to each other, he then applies it to particular categories in groups within the church. He's going to talk to husband and wife, parents and kids, and then uh, uh, slaves and owners, this kind of concept uh, in the first century world. And so he then, he takes the concept of submitting to each other and he carries the verb into verse 22. So that verb is this verb that we, the Greek word is hupotasso, and that's the word that's being translated here as submit. And this particular word, uh, it, it comes with the idea of recognizing place, recognizing your standing, recognizing uh, the authority that is around you, recognizing position. That's what this word has in mind. Uh, it can be synonymous with obedience. Uh, the word can be synonymous with obedience because for somebody to recognize a particular position would if there's somebody who's over them in a, let's say, a military situation, if you have somebody who's over you in rank, then your responsibility is to obey them because they're the ones commanding you. What's interesting here is when Paul uses it here, he then says, well, here's the reason, because the husband is the head of the wife. But he's going to clarify that, not with military kind of language or, okay, so husbands now dominate or lead. He actually gives us a picture of what the headship looks like. You want to Speak to that. Yeah. So in, you know, you, you might expect, especially in our concept of submit, if there were going to be a, a mirror parallel, we might assume that if you say wives submit, husbands lead, husbands command, husbands direct. Um, but I think it should be an interesting definition that that's not where Paul goes next. So if the wife's role is to submit, in verse 25, it says, husbands, your role is to love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Which ought, that sounds like the first Corinthians passage. Like yeah. this, that is so earth shattering to see because I think in our first, in our twenty first century understanding of this, when we look at it, we go, it says submit. That must mean some kind of hierarchy, some kind of power structure, and I right. don't like it. And what Paul's doing is just very different than that. We've got to get inside Paul's mind. Uh, sorry, I cut you off. No, 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 that's perfect. Yeah, so you're you're right. It is. It subverts the the power structures that we might expect to find, and instead you see this. This situation, it reminds me of Philippians chapter 2, when, when Paul says, speaking to all Christians, have the mind of Christ, uh, not looking to your own needs first, but the needs of others. And this is the picture of marriage, of, um, of the wife, uh, in a sense, ordering herself under, or how we want to translate that idea of submission, but then the husband loving and dying for his wife. Uh, metaphorically, right. maybe maybe physically, but but metaphorically dying in to attitude, self, in an mindset, attitude yeah. of Christ that is giving up himself for the good of his wife. And there's this picture, I think, of um, this, this works, this picture requires both to have the other's interests at heart. Right. And it only, that mutuality right. is required here. Not, I have authority, I have the, the, the tiebreaker, I'm the I'm the boss. I'm the I'm boss. The yeah, that's just a foreign concept to this passage entirely. Mm-hmm. Now, what I find interesting. So we wanted to say we wanted to get down to practicality here. So what I find interesting is when Jesus and when Paul often when they are asked what do they think about marriage, 
their first instinct, and Paul does the same thing here in this particular passage a few verses later, they will go back to the Genesis account, the pre-fall, the pre-Genesis 3 account. And it's almost like they use it as a picture of what we're trying to get back to. Here's what marriage is supposed to look like. And when we look at the Genesis account, we have that the man and woman are eye to eye. They're, they're, they get, they're opposite each other. They sit face to face with vulnerability, intimacy. They're, 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 they have, they're naked without shame. This, this picture of oneness, this picture of mutual love and respect. You don't get a picture of power struggle. You don't get a picture of, of this going terribly wrong, this having all these issues with it until we get into Genesis 3. And then what we see in Genesis 3, I think is instructive to what this looks like practically. If you remember in Genesis 3, when God comes and speaks to wives, he speaks to the women, and this is part of what we call the curse of mankind. He says, your desire will be for your husband, but then he says, he'll rule over you. And we, we, we probably need to bring some of the language from this into even understanding that. Your desire, and we covered in a previous podcast, that word desire is this, this desire for mastery, this desire for a power grab, this desire for authority, this desire to dominate and own. It's interesting to me that when Paul and when Jesus want to speak about what we're trying to do with marriage, they always point back to the pre-fall picture. So, as I was wrestling through what does this look like practically in my community group and just in my life, I think the realization dawned on me, and this has been instructive, I think, as I've navigated this pastorally. What Paul has in mind and what I think the, the Bible has in mind is we're trying to recapture in marriage what we lost in Genesis 3. What is the thing that we see as an effect of that fall? Women desire for mastery. When Paul says to yield that or recognize I think what he has in mind is not uh, you stay inside or you don't get a job or he has the vote or he has the power. I think what he has in mind is practically when you feel in your heart a desire for mastery, a desire to usurp power, a desire to say I'm in charge, a desire to say no, 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 I want that, that struggle that every marriage will have at different times. When you feel that in your heart, that's the thing you're yielding. That's what you're submitting because it's going to bring us back to this vulnerable kind of mutual submission, oneness, awesome place. And I think that's what Paul has in mind. I think that's what the Bible has in mind. For, for when women feel this desire for power in their marriage, this desire to dominate their husband, that's the thing they're yielding. And that, that, that's as practical as I think Paul would have us take it. And that actually is really instructive because every woman I've talked to when I've explained this, this aspect of this to them, they go, that makes, that, I, I feel that. I really do feel that. And it, it was helpful to kind of unlock, I think, what Paul actually has in mind here. Yeah, I, I think that is so helpful. And if you take your same cue from the fallen description of Genesis 3, and I think it's important to notice, uh, Genesis 3 doesn't give commands. Correct. It yeah. gives descriptions. Correct. Totally. So when it says your husband will rule over you, that is not a command. Correct. Husbands rule over yes. your wives. That's a description. Now in this fallen situation, you're going to desire mastery, and your husband's going yeah, to rule. We've over lost you. what we had. We've lost what and we so had. So the rest, when when this is a, when this is asked in the rest of the Bible, it's let's get back what we had. Yes. Yeah. And so the counter to you're going to want to master your husband is to submit. The counter, I think, to husbands rule over women is husbands love your wives, as love Christ your wives, and lay your lives it's down. A, for it's them. exactly what I would expect Paul to say. Yes. It's exactly what I would expect the biblical author to say. Being careful with his Old Testament and careful with what we see in the Bible, and it's a beautiful picture, actually. That I think all of us could wrap our arms around. Uh, and, and so I, to me, this was helpful. I, I did want to end here. Uh, so do you, do you have any other comment on, on Ephesians 5 before we move forward? I think the only thing I would say is it, it, 
it speaks to our fallen cultural situation that we are determined to try to read it in terms of power. Right. And the minute we make that move, we misunderstand the text because we want to know, okay, so who has the power? And when we ask that question, we're really asking the wrong question. the wrong question. Yeah. We've already started in a bad place uh, that I don't think Paul's starting with. Yeah. Um, Here's where I wanted to end. Just, just take us briefly here just in a, in a couple of minutes. Um, Proverbs 31 is uh, there's debate as to what's exactly going on here. Is this wisdom personified? But uh, this is a poem. It's an acrostic poem that ends the book of Proverbs. And Proverbs is about real wisdom in real life on the ground. That's what Proverbs is about. What does godly wisdom look like uh, to live with God as king? What does it look like? And this last poem, this acrostic poem, is detailing an excellent wife, it says. And uh, as we read it, we, we, read, we read this, and the verbs are translated for us almost always in present tense. Uh, so she, she considers a field and buys it. She is home. She, does, she goes to the market. She, all these different things. And uh, for my wife, what she found was that was a, it was a, a pattern that she felt like she would never live up to, the Proverbs 31 story. Right. She stays up late. She gets yeah. up early. She stays up late <laughs> and gets up early. She, she is a realtor. She is a, a tanner. She can make clothing. She also raises the kids. She also goes to the marketplace. And Sarah went, this is a, my wife, Sarah, she went, this is a set of expectations I could never live up to. No, never. And it was crushing. It, yes. it felt crushing. She always found herself reading it going, I'm a failure. I don't mm-hmm. do this well. And we both had the same professor of Hebrew that taught us this. And it was really instructive. And when I just, I just casually mentioned it to Sarah, she started crying. Yeah. And whenever she listens to this, she's going to be like, don't say that. But uh, <laughs> she started crying. And, and what our professor pointed out was the, the, the verbs here that are almost always being translated in the present tense are in the Hebrew language. They're, they're written more as a completed or past tense. And then he, he gave us this picture. He said similar things to what we just said. And he said, this is the idea that a man toward the end of his life celebrating his wife, looking back on their marriage, looking back on their time together, says she knew exactly the wise thing to do in the moment, in the years and decades that we've been together. When, when, we, needed, when, we, needed to, when we needed to buy a field, she considered it. She had the wisdom and knew what was right there. When we had our children, she had the wisdom to know how to navigate that. When we had, and he says, looking back on it, if you translate all the verbs as past tense, the picture is completely different. This is a man celebrating this is an excellent wife. This an is an old looks man like. speaking to a younger man. Yeah, saying, this is what your mom was like. Yeah. And let me tell you how great she was. And what that does is, if you look at the picture in here of what an excellent wife is, so many of these things I think we need to recapture mm-hmm. and it speak power to and speak beauty into. And not we, we, we've taken the biblical narrative and said women are to submit and obey and get in the house. Yeah. And we've just missed, I think, the story of what the Bible's talking about. And this is such a beautiful picture of, I think, what an excellent wife looks like. And our context has been, uh, what does this mean in the context of man and wife in the home? And so I just thought that's helpful and instructive for us to end there uh, because this is a really beautiful picture. It really is. And I think the, the aim then would be that a healthy Christian marriage leads to a wife flourishing in all of her gifts. Yeah. In all of her giftedness. And that's, that's what a husband who serves her well does. And a husband who says, there's no one like her. Yeah. Like, that's, a, that's an awesome picture, and the Bible is consistent with its picture of what this looks like. And so we just wanted to speak to that briefly here uh, as best we could. Well, that's been, that's been really helpful, um, and, uh, and I pray that it's helpful for people listening as we've, uh, we've sought to bring some biblical clarity to the modern question. Thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity. 
Thanks for listening to Out of Curiosity as we discussed what do gender roles look like in marriage and family. If you want to dig deeper into this topic, we suggest that you read Ephesians 5, 18-32, and the books Humanity by Charles Sherlock, Jesus, Justice, and Gender Roles by Kathy Keller, and Bourgeois Babes, Bossy Wives, and Bobby Haircuts by Michael Bird. If you want to send in a question or contact us, go to OOCuriosity.com and follow us on Instagram at OOCuriosity. Be sure to subscribe to keep up with future episodes.